You're listening to the Inner Field Trip Podcast, designed to help highly sensitive people and deep feelers explore unconscious biases so they protect their energy, stand on the side of justice, and become better ancestors. My name is Lisa Renee Hall, your host and tour guide. In this episode, I'm in conversation with James Olivia Chu Hillman. I met James Olivia through an introduction by one of my mentor coaches, Annika Komen, who you met in episode eight. And the conversation I had with James Olivia was so deep and it was so timely because at the time when we chatted, I had a rather hard breakup with a person who was in my inner circle. It was also coming off of the tailwind of some very oppressive conversations I had with a couple of business owners that wanted to bring me in to their work as their diversity, equity, and inclusion expert. However, what they were pitching to me was very predatory and based on really outdated business model, which looked like that they would benefit from plundering and extracting my expertise. So when James Olivia and I spoke, it was coming off of those very, very draining conversations. And one of the things she talks about a lot is the rise of contempt when someone is learning from an anti-racism, anti-bias, or anti-oppressive educator. And she's very clear with her clients that at a certain point in the journey, and she knows what point that is, she even names the lesson in one of her programs, a disobedient school, she tells them by a certain week, they're going to feel nothing but contempt towards her. And so when she explained this concept of contempt in this relationship between educator and pupil, it started to make sense to me. And I'm not going to explain much more because James Olivia does such an amazing job of doing so in our conversation. But I want you to keep this in mind that Whether you're working with an anti-racism expert or an anti-bias facilitator or anti-oppressive educator, that along the journey, because you feel like you're losing and losing and losing, the idea of contempt starts to build. And that's where you feel nothing but rage or anxiety or disgust towards your educator. And so in this conversation, James Olivia explains that in more detail. And shared with you ways in which you can navigate this so that you can continue on this journey of becoming anti-oppressive and anti-biased and anti-racist. Let me share more about James Olivia. James Olivia Chu Hillman facilitates and mediates uncomfortable, necessary, life-changing conversations with those who want more joy and connection and less suffering in their most important relationships with themselves, their loved ones, their organizations, and the world. James Olivia comes to the work of relational life and leadership coaching and facilitation with the lived experience of moving through life in the United States as a multiracial and sometimes white presenting other with multiple intersecting privileged and marginalized identities. They bring relentless compassion an unusual perspective, and an eclectic variety of tools to the conversation of expanding our lives and leadership beyond personal growth and into relational development. 
James Olivia believes that our freedoms are bound to one another. Here's James Olivia. Hey, James Olivia. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I'm excited too. I love our conversations. I love. We go deep quickly. Yes, we do. We already started. (laughs) We started in the green room. And so I had to remind James Olivia, hey, we're not recording yet. And then they said, yeah, I know. I know. (laughs) So one of the questions I always like to start off with is who are the ancestors, whether familial, intellectual, who guide your work, who guide what you do? Who do you bring with you into your work? This is a very, very long list. I'm ready. I will start and I wouldn't even be able to remember everybody all at the same time. So I'll start with who's obvious to me right now in this moment. I'm thinking about Laren Alta's framing of ancestry, and she calls it your milk line, your bloodline, and your storyline. And so the bloodline is obviously the people that I come from DNA-wise and how my body got here. <laughs> and so my mother's family immigrated from Hong Kong. So I'm first generation on that side of the family. And on my dad's side, his father was a German Jew who got adopted, I think in the family, but in Oklahoma to some Baptist farmers. And he became a Baptist preacher and a chaplain in the army. So both of my grandfathers were Baptist ministers because missionary colonization. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my father's mother was Potawatomi and white. So my ancestral grandmother on that side of the family was Wachiki. Beyond that, beyond those generations, I have no idea. For somebody who knows broadly where I'm from, specifically and way back, I don't know a whole lot. There's a lot missing. There are a lot of gaps. But that does inform my milk line, which is heavily influenced by Southern Baptist (laughs) upbringing, which I no longer consider myself a part of. But that does establish a lot of my understanding of of the world and where a lot of my spirituality and my understanding of God and relationship come from for all that I've accepted and all I've rejected. That's where a lot of it started. And storyline, you can see behind me a little bit. I just books, books and books and books and books. And then the teachers that I have now and that have really shaped me probably in the last five or 10 years have been phenomenal. So I don't know if that answers your question. There's just... It does. (laughs) It does. And I'm always fascinated the different ways or the richness of the various answers I get from my guests. Mm -hmm. And so, and I like the way that Laren has indicated the different lines, milk Mm -hmm. line, blood line, storyline. And so she has a blog post. I will link to it in the show notes so that you can read it in more detail. How does having the blood of the oppressed and the oppressors in your bloodline, how do you reconcile that? I don't know that there's reconciliation. You and I talk about right relationship and repair I hold that repair and reconciliation aren't the same thing. So there's a lot of repair to be done in me and through me. A lot of my work is repair. And I I don't think that you can get to the place 
I'm probably right around midlife. I'm right now getting closer to 50 than I'm 40. Yeah, 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 that's me too. Getting close. (laughs) And I'm just like peeking over that line. And I don't think that I would have the understanding of the generations of repair and the ancestral repair and the spiritual repair and the political repair if I hadn't gone through many decades of destruction personally, like interpersonally in my relationships to get to a place where I'm like, oh, yeah, repair is that big of a fucking deal. And it's not just mine. It is my responsibility and it is my work and it's bigger than me. And so the concept of right relationship, can you explain that a little bit more? (laughs) I wish I could. This is my favorite question to not answer. (laughs) Because I don't answer it all the time. I have questions about it and I don't have anybody else's answers. And I think the answers change moment to moment because relationship is a living thing, because we are living things and we're changing. So my questions around it are, start out, is there room for you? Is there room for you in any particular relationship, in your relationship with yourself, your food, your spirituality, your work, your partnerships, your parenting, the land? Like, is there room for you? The second question and the third question keep coming back to the first question. Is it just? And when I ask, is it just? I don't mean like, is it fair? Because I don't know what fair is. I mean. Is there regard and consideration for everybody in the relationship, including you and including not you? Because it's not all about you. It isn't. And it is. like It is both completely about you and not at all. And the third question is, is it sustainable? Are the decisions that I'm making as I engage with my responsibility, are these sustainable decisions for me and for this ecosystem? I love that. I mean, first of all, I'm a fan of questions. I know you are. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a fan of really good questions because I do believe they're stupid questions and stupid questions are the ones that are meant to derail and to distract. Mm -hmm. So I do believe there are stupid questions, especially if they fall into that class. But these questions here about right relationship, it also seems to touch on the fact that there's nuance that you can't define for others what that relationship will look like and what that will actually mean. I would like to. (laughs) (laughs) I can't. You're right. I cannot do that. And so as you think of right relationship, how does that show up in terms of the decisions you've had to make about your religious upbringing? Oh, wow. Yeah, I started making those decisions early on. Before I had any language around right relationship, actually, I don't think that I ever heard those words together like that in a way that hit me in my heart. And I was like, oh, that's going to change the trajectory of my life, knowing those words now. And it has. Or from Desiree Attaway. So not until I was like in my 40s. <laughs> like, right. But I think we all probably, I mean, I don't know if we all, I shouldn't say that because I have no idea what we all are up to, especially after this last election in the US. (laughs) But my experience is knowing what right relationship isn't when I'm in it. Like, oh, this doesn't feel good in my body. This doesn't feel good in my soul. I'm fighting this. There's shame. There's all kinds of stuff that is not, I don't think, a joyful part of human relationship and connection. And knowing that at like 13 years old, going there's not room for me here. This is not just, this is not sustainable. I didn't have those words. I didn't have that framework to think about it. But 
I knew that how relationship with something greater was being practiced in the religion that I was being raised in didn't have room for me and was not sustainable. And I find that interesting because it's those teenage years when we start to question. And depending on who's raising us, it's either they welcome that line of inquiry or it's, you know, you're blaspheming against God. We can't have all the answers. We must have faith. Yeah. Did you find that at 13 years old that your family was supportive of the questioning and or were they like, hey, don't question Um, God? I would say I was not blatantly punished for it, nor was I supported. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that my mom knew what to do with me. It was sort of like, wait a minute, what? (laughs) This is not going to fit in with my parenting plan (laughs) of you doing what you're told. This doesn't work. Having two Baptist preacher grandfathers, there was not a whole lot of room for like, hey, maybe we're all on the wrong track here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That wasn't necessarily a welcome line of question. And I learned early on to keep those questions to myself. They were deeply personal. I think that shaped my relationship with my own spiritual practice as a deeply personal one and not something that I understood you could have community around and have like support and family and other people. Like my understanding of worship and ritual, had it not been for music, I don't think I would have understood that people get together and actually just worship a God instead of get together and try to control other people like that. Right. That possibility, I don't think was in my framework as a child. And depending on... I mean, with most religious communities, I was raised in a fundamental Protestant religion. Mm -hmm. And in most of these religious communities, there stops being a separation between religion and culture. And it all seems to just blend together. Mm -hmm. And it gets to the point where now nobody really understands if, is that really in the Bible? If I can't wear short sleeves or spaghetti strap (laughs) on my dress... And I'm being frowned upon and I'm being chastised when I walk through. Is that biblical or is this cultural? Okay, you just reminded me of this very, very cute story. I grew up with a Baptist church, not a mile from the house I grew up in. And we didn't go to that church. We went to a church that was 15 minutes away. And I always thought it was because my dad was in the military and this church was very military. It was like people coming and going and It felt very kind of, I guess, at home for my family. And my dad wasn't with us for most of the time. Like after I was five, he was either stationed somewhere else or he had gone. And so here's me and my Chinese mom going to this oddly military Baptist church and not just going to the one down the street. And I didn't know until I was at teens or maybe in my 20s, I was like, why didn't we ever go to this church? And we had moved there in the late 70s to this place. And my mom said, oh, they wouldn't let me wear pants. (laughs) And that's why we ended up going to a church 15 minutes away, because my mom couldn't wear trousers to church. As you said, it's a cute story. But this also illustrates the many weird stuff that seems to infiltrate the culture of religion, Mm -hmm. whether it be not wearing pants to church, or in my case, I remember if you didn't wear a long sleeve dress, then you were chastised and a whole bunch of all these different rules. And then of course, 
in our line of work, we talk about skin color privilege and all that and how someone said that the most segregated hour in America is on Sundays. As yeah, yeah, yeah. And then some go to Southern Baptist, which traditionally is very white. Mm-hmm. And then other traditions, which are African-American and, and so on. And so did that ever come up amongst your family members as you were attending church? This is a wild one for me because part of my family is Chinese. And so I would grow up going, driving up to San Francisco and going to Chinese Baptist church. And we would just say, oh, we're going to Chinese church today. (laughs) (laughs) And it was, I mean, it was so Chinese. It was like, there was not an English to be heard unless I was with other kids because the kids spoke English. But for the most part, it was older people. So my grandmother and grandfather and people in their generation and other like recent, maybe not recent, but like all the kids were first generation American born. Mm -hmm. Typically, not all, but like my cousins and I are first generation. And so like my mom and everybody older, all speaking Chinese and me being the odd one out sitting there like, one of these things is definitely not like the others. <laughs> and I didn't grow up in a Chinese speaking home. So mm-hmm. I learned enough Chinese to get by at the dinner table, like to be more or less polite when I chose to and did not understand the depth of relationship that like say my grandmother and grandfather had with their God, mm-hmm. like how much persecution they like coming from, they came through Hong Kong, but my grandmother and grandfather both were mainland China folks. And when Hong Kong was occupied by the Japanese, they were pushed into mainland where my grandfather was not allowed to preach. He was detained. He was actually imprisoned for being Christian in this very, very authoritarian, no religion And so the family was split up. Like there's a lot of trauma in there, but the family was split up. My grandfather was in China. And so them coming to the States and just like worshiping openly, my understanding of relationship with God or spirit from that side of the family is so different from going to a mostly white Baptist church where it really is like culturally worlds and worlds apart, not just because of language and ethnicity, but the actual, the understanding of persecution, like Christians, especially in the US, yes, tell yes. the story of like Christians are being persecuted. It's like in America, Christians are not actually being persecuted. <laughs> right, right. But to have family who did have this experience of being imprisoned and then being free to worship, and it's like, and then coming here and having completely segregated worship, yes, not yes. in the same way, but like based on language, really. It's just a wild experience. So like I'm looking to one side of the family and I'm looking to the other side of the family and going, the stories are very similar. Like the words, we can talk about persecution and we can talk about worship and we can talk about relationship with the Holy Spirit and we can say the words and they mean such different things. And that goes to a lot of what we are dealing with today. Mm -hmm. That we can't even have a common language around the oppressions that we are seeking justice for. Even that word oppression, right? Like when we're talking about, I have such bias around this. I'm like, who's actually oppressed? But when you talk to somebody who's uncomfortable after being so comfortable for generations, 
use the word like I feel oppressed. It's like, yeah, you yeah. feel that. <laughs> I believe you. I believe that you feel that. And I don't have the same definition you have of it. Right. So when we saw earlier in 2020 and people were coming out, especially in the United States, they were saying, I would rather slavery over wearing a mask. And it was a sign held up by a white woman. It was just bizarre. Yeah. Bizarre to see that. I don't know that this person who was holding up this sign has any, I mean, clearly they don't have an understanding of the conditions of slavery in the United States. It's like, are you talking about like 50 shades of gray slavery? They're like, what what are you talking about? Because that seems different. (laughs) It's different. (laughs) It is different. And so you talked about music being that thing that helped you to stay connected to community. Yeah, I don't know that it helped me stay connected to community so much as it let me see that that was possible. Like that making music together with other people singing. Oh, that's right. Because you play piano and organ. Okay. Okay. Oh, wow. I forgot about that. That's exciting. That there are not necessarily wordless for me, music and lyrics go together. I get distracted. Some people can listen to music and work. I'm like, I can't because they're singing words. (laughs) 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 Now those words are in my head and I can't do anything else. So I won't say completely wordless, but it's sort of art in any of its forms, like the way that we see images and hear sounds and feel textures and taste things, that there are these less cerebral ways of connecting with something greater than us. And we do them together. And music is one of those things, like when I hear a choir singing, like... I know. <laughs> I tear up and I start to cry when I, especially when pop music, when pop songs, like when pop artists have a produced song where they have a choir singing in the background, it just yes. kills me. I'm like, oh, you're going to basically take my pop music love language and <laughs> layer on. Yeah, several voices that harmonize together. Yeah. And there was a song I was listening to just yesterday. It was Rolling Stones, You Can't Always Get What You Want, which is like, pretty much the anthem of 2020. (laughs) (laughs) And towards the end of the song, like, well, I mean, there's a choir piece throughout, Uh but at the end, it's just a beautiful... And then... Yes, and he stops singing and it's just the voice is... And it's just... Oh, it's so... I just swipe it back and swipe, like not rewind anymore, but I swipe the song, (laughs) scroll back and I'm listening again. And so... Yeah, I understand the the deep connection to the harmony that can come out in especially choirs. Yeah, the good choirs. So That's so funny. I started following earlier in the year all these dancers on Instagram. I'm like, I just want to see people dancing, like moving their body in ways that I could never. And (laughs) (laughs) And there is one dancer who, she's in a bunch of videos. My partner and I say that she's made of liquid, like... Her body is just so fluid and she dances in heels and she's just amazing. But she introduced me through one of her videos on Instagram to some Nigerian pop music that I can't get enough of because it's so poppy and so delicious. And then with these incredible harmonies that are not necessarily familiar to my ear and yet they are. And sometimes I'm like, I don't even care what the words are. This is my heaven. (laughs) I don't have to understand these words. 
and I'm not distracted by them. I can just lose myself in these harmonies and these wonderful, like it's my cooking music. Like I just dance around the kitchen and cook. We are not at all talking about right relationships, but we are. (laughs) But we are, but we are. And it reminds me of this parable of, and this is so fitting because there's this parable that someone had shared online about, and I sang in a choir and I remember like the boast, oh yeah, I sang a second soprano in a symphonic choir that placed second place at the Kiwanis Festival in 1990. This is like way, just a boast that I can sing. But it was <laughs> as part of a choir. But there's this in choirs when they sing and they're holding out these long notes. If you have 10 people in the soprano section or even two, they don't all take a breath at the same time. One will take the breath while the note is sustained. Mm-hmm. And the person was trying to show that this is comparable to the work that we do, that at times some of us have to tap out to catch our breath, mm-hmm. just like in a choir. But it doesn't mean that the work doesn't continue. I love that metaphor. Yeah, it's a beautiful metaphor. Beautiful. And we're going to come back with more metaphors <laughs> with James, Olivia, and we'll do so after this quick message. My name is Sarah Torino, and I'm the CEO and founder of the Whole Woman Wellness Formula. I've been working with Lisa Renee Hall since 2018. Through the years, she has offered many opportunities to help me continually work to unpack my hidden biases. And each of those opportunities have been unique and potent. For example, She created an exploration about reconnecting with our own personal ancestry, which we as white people in the West have been disconnected from due to colonization. So it was incredibly profound to research and reclaim the foods, religion, language, lineage, history of my personal ancestry. And she guided us through that. It was tremendous. Recently, she offered the inner field trip, which uses reflective writing to help you explore and unpack your hidden biases. And it's incredibly powerful. She takes you through different aspects and you're able to explore that stuff on your own. Before joining Lisa, I had learned from several social justice educators, and I believe in learning from many different kinds of teachers. The difference I found in Lisa's work is that for me, it felt truly liberatory. There was a deep through line of my liberation being inexorably tied to the liberation of all. And I feel that she saw me as a human and allowed me to, as she says, stumble bravely. Lisa and her work speaks to what she calls the highly sensitive individual. And she understands how people who are highly sensitive, like me and others, how we sense and feel. We're wired a little bit differently. We're intuitive, empathic. And so how she approaches her teaching and creating opportunities to learn is with that sensibility in mind. And other programs don't do that. And that doesn't make them less than. It just makes them different. But this aspect of Lisa's programming and teaching is the aspect of her work that I value the most. I believe in my bones that this work is soul work. It is healing your soul wound. 
And when you begin to heal your soul, I believe ultimately it helps to heal my line, my lineage, backward and forward. My work with Lisa impacts literally every aspect of how I am in the world now, how I parent, how I do business, what kind of friend I am, how I interface with the world so that I can use my skills, my voice, breaking up with perfectionism, my resources, my life to work for liberation for all, to fight systemic racism, both on a micro level and on a macro level, and all of it being held in this container of being allowed to stumble bravely. And I really truly believe that this is the work of a lifetime. This is not something that I'm like, oh, I'm done. I've arrived. I will do this for the rest of my life. There's no finishing point. It's like an onion. There are layers upon layers upon layers, and everything is up for review. And something that may not have come up two years ago is now coming forward now. And I can look at it with all the tools that I'm learning through Lisa's help and guidance. And I want to be really clear that I really don't believe that this work is about self-improvement. This is not a self-improvement project, but healing your soul wound is an important part of this work. I don't think you can ignore that. It's about looking at it. It's about facing it directly and allowing for a real look at what white supremacy is doing and how we are a part of it. That's necessary work. And once you kind of can get there, you can get in the fight in a different way. And you can figure out how to make real change in your sphere of influence. Yeah. I truly believe that one drop causes a ripple, causes a wave. Will systemic racism be eradicated in my lifetime? Man, I hope so. <laughs> I don't know. It's so complex in nature, but I hope so. And I hope the whole system is ripped apart and we turn the keys over to Black and Indigenous people to rebuild it from the ground up. I am here for it because this is about humanity for all. I mean this most sincerely. Lisa Renee Hall has changed me on a cellular level. And you know what's strange about it is she would say that she didn't do the work. True. I did the work. But she created the container for me to do the work. And it has changed me. She was the drop that caused the ripple, that caused the wave in my life. And she didn't hate me or condemn me or punish me. She saw my humanity and helped me to find and field trip my way stumbling around. (laughs) into myself to see my own humanity and reclaim it. Lisa facilitates that change in so many of us. I'm humbled by her and grateful to her. How she does her work, I will never know, but I am so grateful to her. If you don't even think if you, just sign up. Sign up to work with her. Sign up to be a part of her community on Patreon. It is the single best thing I've ever done. And I am truly grateful to Lisa Renee Hall. I cannot wait for the day where I finally get to meet her in person. (laughs) It'll happen. (laughs) Thanks, Lisa. And 
We're back. I'm in conversation with James Olivia Chu Hillman. And one of the things I didn't ask you about is your first name, James Olivia. That's hilarious. It's chosen. It's chosen. It's a chosen name. I am torn here because there's so much in the gift of a name. Like our names are both precious gifts from people who came before us. And I am living evidence that they don't always fit. Yeah, (laughs) true. So true. And so I treasure every name that I've ever had. And I think I have landed on one that will sustain me for the rest of my life. But if it doesn't, it can be easy enough to remedy. And why is it that we need to remember that it's okay to change? Oh, God. For I guess for any number of reasons. I'm going to go with Marie Kondo's philosophy on gifts. (laughs) But if it doesn't spark joy, we can let it go. Our names are so... On the one hand, you can't escape yourself. If you're trying to change your name to get away from who you are, good luck to you. And if adopting a new name is a way to get closer to who you are, then it seems like a joyful way to live. It's a Um, good incentive. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously my name has sort of a gender fuck element to it. (laughs) But a lot of times, and I don't know if this is in all languages, I don't think it is. But in English in particular, a lot of our names are deeply gendered. And so when I think about my trans siblings in the world, it's like not just giving a name to a person, but giving a whole identity. Not every gift is for you. Not every gift is for you. I'm just sitting with that awareness. Thank you. Yeah. And so as a nurturer of disobedience, (laughs) (laughs) so at the time of recording, Biden has been declared Mm president-elect of the United States after four years of Trump. As you look at your nation, what are your thoughts about the decision that the majority of Americans have made? That is a really beautiful question. Thank you. Because I have no answer. When we talk about a majority or the minority or any group, I am becoming less and less interested in trying to understand groups of people than I am in trying to understand what a person has for me, what a person wants for me to know about them. And when we go to cast our vote, we are symbolically saying, I want you to know many, many things about me with this one message. And a message has been delivered. And if I don't go after understanding, I don't know what's underneath that whole message. The message was either Biden-Harris or Trump-Pence. And either way, Mm -hmm. regardless of which person ticked off on their ballot, I don't know what's underneath it until I ask. And so my thoughts here are personal to me Am I willing to go after understanding, regardless of who and what? And a question more generally for us as a country, like, are we willing to go after understanding, not just people on the opposite side of the aisle, I will say in weird political language that I don't really agree with, but even my partner and I voted the same way across the board. We had identical ballots. That doesn't mean that we have identical reasons for the choices that we made. And so even in my own house with somebody I agree with, am I willing to go after understanding like, okay, tell me about who you are 
that these are the decisions that you make. Because until I understand that, I'm not relating. Is one of the problems, if you can say it such, with the American political process is that it's deeply binary? (laughs) That is one of our troubles, yes. I would say that that extends way beyond the political process. That is, we are deeply binary in our understanding of many, many things, including gender, including race, including haves and have-nots, including what's good and what's bad. We are deeply binary in our thinking. And I don't have a hatred of binary. I mean, we both were in IT at some point, like a binary (laughs) can be very, very important. Very important. (laughs) Yes. And when we make decisions, there are binaries in our decision-making. Like, because I am trapped in time and space, if I want to write a word or I want to write another word, I have to choose one or the other. It might be sequential. I might get both, but I can't have both at the same time. If I want to drink this glass of water, I can't also be drinking coffee at the same time. I have one mouth. I have to pick either or. We make decisions that aren't necessarily binary, but we do have to choose a thing, one thing at a time. And we have really neglected to revel in the tension and the nuance and the complexity that exists even as we make our one decision at a time. Hmm. Nice. And so as you look at, and we've talked about this, where even in the work that we do, where we're helping mainly white women who show up, how to be anti-bias, anti-racist, anti-oppressive, that a very weird relationship can emerge. And I remember sharing with you a few months back after I had someone who was part of my inner circle make a spectacular exit. (laughs) The exit had to be spectacular and well-known. And despite my boundaries, they were violated as this person made an exit from my inner circle. And we talked about, and you gave me language around what was happening, how someone could be such a huge fan of mine and then be part of my inner circle and then turn around and pretty much slap me in the face virtually. I have different language than you do around boundaries, I think. I don't think that she violated your boundaries because you didn't let her. This boundary that you held around, I do not want to read a long email about your process, your personal process. Her writing it was her doing her thing, but your refusal to read it was an upholding of your boundary. I mean, she could have sent you like a novel and the boundary wasn't, you can't do this. The boundary is, I'm not going to participate in the thing that you're doing. So my take on it is that you upheld a boundary in a really beautiful way and it had nothing to do with her behavior. Powerful reframe. My goodness, you're good for my soul. (laughs) So good for my soul. So, as we're talking about this situation, and you're giving me some really deep insight, the idea of contempt came up where someone will see Lisa Renee Hall and they'll show up on Instagram or YouTube or wherever they find my content and they'll be, oh my goodness, you're so wise. Oh, I love your voice. All the whatever praise they come up with. And it doesn't sway me. Jimi Hendrix said that praise and criticism come from the same place. And so if I ignore criticism, I also ignore praise. Because what I find is the person who deifies me today demonizes me as soon as my humanity is shown. Mm -hmm. And so 
at the time, I couldn't really understand. Here's someone who praised everything I was doing, my process, everything I'm doing. And then somewhere along the way, my humanity comes out. And now it's like, Lisa's this and Lisa's that. And oh, how dare she? And it's just like, how but I'm the same person. Human? Yeah. How dare I be human? How dare I be human? How dare you step outside this box that I have constructed for you? I have a picture of you and you're not living up to that picture. And what's interesting about it is that I spent a year deconstructing and decolonizing all these labels that have been thrown at me. So there's no way I'm going to now let someone put labels on me and I'm going to be happy with that? Absolutely not. (laughs) Absolutely not. So the label was, I'm guessing, somewhere in the realm of teacher, guide, mentor, and then something beyond that. Because I have teachers and guides and mentors, but there's a, like you become the source of what is to be known and labeled good. Like it's just a new way of judging and labeling things. So someone that I learn from and with a lot is Jen McCabe. And she calls this ogre building. Overbuilding? Ogre building. Ogre You put someone on a pedestal and end up on that pedestal. They are not fully human because they're your priest or your whatever. They're on a pedestal. And in order to remove them from the pedestal, It can't just be, I mean, it can, but for some people, it won't be just the value of our existence is same, same. And we are now operating from healthy self-esteem. It's, you're still up there on that pedestal, but now you're scary. You're an ogre. You're not here to save me. You're here to hurt me. That's incredible. And the relationship starts with, you are here. This person has chosen Lisa to be their educator. They've chosen James Olivia to be their educator. And so they made a choice. And this goes back to something you were saying earlier about the choices we make. So this person's made a choice with their time, with their investment, with their money for you, James Olivia, to be their teacher. And then you get to, as you were saying to me in the green room, you get to the fifth module. (laughs) Or in my case, they get to a particular writing prompt. Mm -hmm. And now suddenly it's like this thing emerges, a different part of them where it's now they're pointing fingers at James Olivia, at least saying, you're the problem. You're making me feel this way. You're causing me grief. You're causing me pain. You're causing me to separate from my family members. Just handing over a lot of their power. Yeah. Okay. So that's where the contempt comes in, right? We're getting into the juicy stuff. (laughs) I love it. Juicy. It's a self-contempt. It's the contempt of, you must know more than I do. You're asking me to make a decision that overrides my own knowing and my own sovereignty. And so rather than just own, like you phrased it as giving away power, that's exactly what it is. Rather than own, hey, I have a disagreement. I have a difference. I don't believe that what you are illuminating is truly the right choice for me in this moment. And rather than take responsibility for making a decision that I'm afraid will disappoint or anger you, I will blame you and call you wrong. If anyone could see me right now, they'd see like I have my hand against my chest and my face in a shock. Because <laughs> what you said is that that contempt is self-contempt. Mm-hmm. It's a disregard of our own power. It's a disregard of our own sovereignty and our own knowing. 
and a disregard of difference. And, you know, I say this thing all the time, tension holds possibility. If you want to get rid of tension, the easiest way is for us to just stop existing. There's inherent tension in us existing and having differences together. That's being alive. There's so much possibility in that. And so if I come to you for education and I say, okay, Lisa, tell me what to do. Tell me how to think. Teach me how to think about stuff. And you offer me all of these questions or these ideas. And I go, oh, that really rubs up against like my own, no, thank you. I don't really like this. If I have a difference with you and I just say, wow, Lisa, I don't think we're aligned on this. What's possible when we explore it together? Oh, you don't want to? Okay, well, I'm going to take my learnings and be over here exploring. Oh, you do want to engage with it? Let's see what else we can come up with or like show me how you got here and I'll show you how I got here. And here we are. That's humanizing. That's us relating to... Like if you want to talk about being anti-racist, how about we relate to each other like humans? That's fucking radical. Am I getting bleeped out? Sorry. You will not get bleeped out. Oh, wow. Okay. If I upload this as is... Apple, iTunes will put an E on the episode automatically. Oh, I feel very so, so I believe that sometimes that expressing expletives clears the throat chakra. Yeah. So go ahead. Yeah, I had a physical therapist who told me swearing alleviates pain. Like it's scientifically proven. I think that emotionally that is appropriate as well. I do too. Yeah. It is radical for us to want to know each other and learn about how we got here. Even when here is two different places in front of each other. And when you described this idea that the student comes in, expects you to have all the answers, expects you to tell them what to do, how to think. With my community, people will come in and it's like, okay, how am I supposed to do this right? Tell me how to do this right. Like, Lisa, tell me what time I need to get up to do the writing prompt. And then tell me how much I have to do. And oh my goodness, I didn't write as much as that next person. Oh, and Lisa didn't like my reaction. Oh, it's like always looking for permission. So in essence, they're trading one master for another. I do this thing called disobedience school. And the most hilarious moment of disobedience school is typically right in the beginning where I'm like, okay, so this is the part where we get to know each other and like, let's set up this container together. People want to know how to do disobedience school well. I think that there's something probably different in our work in that people coming to me know that I'm getting more and more explicit. I don't have your answers for you. You will not get a gold star. I will love you even when you fuck up. I will fuck up with you. <laughs> like. This is how we're going to do, when I say the work, your work's going to be different from my work. I can't even tell you what your work is. Like if you're in here because you want your social justice praxis to like root down and flourish, great. If you're here because you can't say no to your (laughs) mother-in-law, great. (laughs) Like you want to leave your job, great. Like I don't have an answer to what your work is. We're in a place where I don't have your rules. I don't even know what your rules are. I know what mine are and they're for me to follow and they're none of your business. Right. And your rules aren't my business either. And so I think there's a self-selection process. So people are not coming to me necessarily with the same stringent 
hangups around like, please tell me what to do. They'll ask and then we'll all laugh together because they know they're not going to get an answer from me. Or I will give them an answer and I will like ask them to pay me extra for it and tell them that it's not going to be a good one. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, and in my community, there are some tips. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, whether you write outside or you write in your house, that's up to you. Whether you do it first thing in the morning, I used to be very a stickler, like you have to do it as soon as you wake up. But now I'm just like the moment of that day when you can dedicate 30 minutes uninterrupted to this work, then that's when you do it. And so there are guidelines, but I'm a tour guide. And if you go on tour and you go to a museum, everyone's seeing the same tour. Tour guide takes you through, but each person's going to have a different experience. I'm just going to take you there. I'm just going to, here's the tools you need and then we'll take you to the spot. You've got to create your own experience. Do you love your people? I love them. I I love them. Like we talk about the outliers, the ones who are kind of disruptors, not disruptors, like I love disruptors, but the ones who are like, hey, I just want to make this dramatic for myself. Will you participate? We talk about those because they, they get our attention, but for the most part, it seems like people who have chosen to engage with reflecting on their own internal experience and how it comes out in the world and impacts their relationships and other humans, they're really extraordinary people. And what I find really interesting about my people (laughs) who do this work is that they end up creating new questions for themselves. And because they're going deep, none of their questions sound like mine. I can immediately spot when someone comes up with their own method of inquiry and they, oh, I need to further explore this. I know that they have gone deep because it's the same topic, but the questions come out of their deep experience, their connection with their inner guidance, their ancestral guidance and wisdom. And it's just beautiful to witness. It's beautiful. So yeah, I love my people. Because they understand it's not the proximity to the work. It's actually doing the work that gets you ahead. So I've never asked you this. I don't have children. I don't have children. Okay. So here we are with no biological humans that carry our DNA into the future. And with so many people that we impact and share what we have with. I think about what I am doing doing, not just what I'm teaching, but how I am practicing and how I'm creating communities of practice. And I think you'll resonate with this. We both write. We both write like motherfuckers. Like it's Mm -hmm. so, so I can write and it can be moving. Like Instagram is just this wonderful, such a playground. It's like, Hey, I have some words. Oh, you like words. Like I publish them out there and see how people react to the words. Yeah, it's, just like, it's so much fun. Yeah. And they seem to be moving, like people seem moved and that they seem to be shared and sometimes well-received. And I'm not ever saying anything new. There's nothing that I'm saying that's new. I say it in pretty ways, I think, sometimes when I do a really good job and I feel particularly inspired. And it's the doing it. And I think you said this earlier in this conversation. It's like, it's not the proximity to the work. It's the doing the work. And so not even defining what other people's work is. I know my work is 
how do we cultivate more joyful connection and cultivate right relationship? And I can't tell anybody how to do it in a more effective way than I can give them and give myself the experience of it. And hopefully, if I'm really on my game, name the thing that we're doing and go, this is what we're practicing. We're doing it now. Oh, this thing that didn't feel good. You know what we were doing? That relational fuckery, that's called this. And the decisions that led to it are this. And we can get an understanding of like, oh, in this moment, the decisions I'm making are cultivating right relationship or I'm doing something else. Right. It's almost like we make it so complicated and so complex when in fact, it's not. It's not. Really, it isn't. So as we close this conversation, one of the things I like to ask my guests is what advice do they have to stumble bravely? And that's a hashtag that seems to have resonated a lot with my followers. Mm -hmm. They actually say to each other, stumble bravely till next time. It's so sweet. It's lovely. It's so lovely. And so, yeah, what advice as we talked about all this, what can come up when doing this work and the ways in which contempt can arise? Yeah, again, what advice do you have for those listening to Stumble Bravely? Oh, I don't know that this is advice so much as, of course, a question. Of course. Of course, it's a question. Of course. Is there room for grace? It's a great question. It needs no explanation. It's a yes or no question. And sometimes the answer might be no. And in that, is there room for grace? Is there room for the answer to just be what it is? Love it. Love it. Well, thank you, James Olivia. Thanks, Lisa. I was in conversation with James Olivia Chu Hillman. You can find out more about James Olivia and all the resources mentioned in this episode by going to www.innerfieldtrip.com. Look for episode 11. My name is Lisa Renee Hall. Stumble bravely. <laughs>